All right, welcome back to episode nine of the Detection Challenging Paradigms podcast. We've had a little bit of a hiatus uh, due to some personal circumstances, but we're back and better than ever. This week we have Andy Robbins, who is uh, one of the lead engineers of the Bloodhound Enterprise product at Specter Ops. Uh, Andy's going to talk about, uh, we previously had talked with Andy personally about the dichotomy between preventative controls and detective controls, and he had a lot of ideas about that. And he thinks that uh, preventative controls are maybe not as popular as they should be or not talked about as much as they should be. And so in this episode, we kind of explore that idea, maybe discuss why preventative controls aren't given the due that they deserve, but also talk about how we can integrate them into our process more effectively. And without further ado, here is episode nine of Detection Challenging Paradigms. Yeah, okay, well, so, Dude, like... Jared gives me shit for posting pictures of my underwear or whatever. He's just, like, getting all his followers from his beard. So what's worse? I don't know. Okay, <laughs> okay, well, like, there's... Okay, so in Instagram, you know, there's all these hashtags. And, like, one of the ones in cycling, and this seemed to be... you know what a hashtag is, Jared. Wow, okay. I remember back when it was called a pound sign. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh huh. Did you ever send that to a girl and be like, do you want to, and then the pound side? No, I don't think I, don't think I did that. That could have been a way in. 1,000% that. I think, I think, I think, the episode has already started, by the way. Okay, oh, good. Shit. <laughs> back, back when it was called called the pound sign, I don't think pound town was the, uh, was the colloquial term the for that, that activity. <laughs> yeah. Although, okay, so I'm going off the beard porn thing, but... Uh, <laughs> you know we have like the dollar store? Yeah, we, when we were in Scotland, the dollar stores called there was a dollar store called like Pound Town because it's just a pound. Yeah, <laughs> and then there was like, uh, I just remember like we were we were looking at them and there's a bunch of different names for the different dollar stores and one of them was called Lee goes oh look that one's called X Pound Plus, and I look up at the sign and the X is just the Scottish flag, which happens to have like a white you yeah. know X going across it. And I go, lead. That it's just called Pound Plus, <laughs> and you're an idiot because you don't know what the Scottish flag looks like. <laughs> I mean, expound is a word, so that's I mean, a cl- he was trying a, to be smart. It's a classic. Well, see, the best, it's a classic the best part Lee story. This, like yeah, he'll like the, he'll tell you like he'll rip apart like decom for you and tell you things that like even the people who authored it don't even know about it. And I'll be <laughs> like, oh yeah, you know, I just casually read it in the spec, and then I like decompiled it, and like you know, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. And yet he, and then he'll yet get he lost in a hotel the, lobby, the, right? right. <laughs> like show up in the wrong hotel. <laughs> I forgot about that. It's the it's the price the, of genius, right? The the man doesn't even know what the flags of countries that he's visited <laughs> visiting look like. <laughs> oh jeez, man. All right. Well. The wor- the, well, first off, I just want to point out the best part about this beard porn thing is when I lived in Vegas, I was okay. talking to Jared when he was trying to get his Instagram clout, which, by the way, that kind of like dropped off. It lasted like, what, three months? Maybe? It was too stressful, man. It yeah, exactly. Stressful. It's, it's hard being that famous. You know what well, I mean? He's no, famous on Twitter. Like, he's famous on Instagram. In the Minesweeper you know, people, community. Yeah. People in Slack message him all the time. I just don't know what it's like to be Jared Atkinson. Yeah. Really, you don't know the, the pressure. Who among us? The pressure. 
Exactly. And so, but I was over at his house one day and we were talking about this whole Instagram thing. And he, he explained the beard porn thing to me almost like it was a flex. Almost okay, like, on. hey, oh, look yeah, at me. Man. Look at me, man. <laughs> I'm just happy. I'm just happy to be attractive to people. I don't really care. You know, like I'm going to be selective <laughs> yeah. on who I reciprocate yeah. with. But like, yeah. yeah, if you think I'm attractive, that you know, it is what it is. That's flattering. No matter, no matter who it's. It. Yeah. Yeah. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Right. It, like, I also who, are, actually, who are you to disagree? Yeah. 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 You're right. Shit. You're right. Yeah. I just want to point out that this episode, because Jared has kind of shit on me before about my level of fame in the industry versus his. This is the first person. Andy, that we've had on the podcast with more Twitter followers than Jared. Uh huh. Andy, Andy's the inventor of Bloodhound. Are we? Are respect. we? Are we in the podcast now? <laughs> oh, hundred percent. Okay, because there. there's, there's something I want to say about that. About like, okay, Twitter oh, fame, infosec fame. <laughs> Do, all right, everyone, so listen I, to two thirds like of, of a Will Schrader right now. <laughs> I feel like I need to go back and defend the beard porn thing at some point <laughs> here's, for the listeners. <laughs> here's the reality of like infosec and Twitter fame. Nobody in the real world cares. <laughs> nobody, yeah. nobody cares at all. Like being being an infosec famous person is like being a famous bowling player. Like the only people who care about that are other bowlers. Nobody cares. I don't know. There's that. There's that guy that hit the seven ten split recently. You know, I do want to say, competition. man, I do want to say you know you're it was, about. that's okay, a well. great correlation, like infosec to bowling, because everywhere else in the world, like say gaming. Mm-hmm. Like Instagram, if you have a lot of followers, you don't get sponsored. Sure, you don't get sponsored by appeal. nobody in Infosec. Like no, someone someone might give you a thumbs up and retweet your thing if you drop a blog. That's it. Like I don't that's know. Like, I got a free I got a free shirt and mug from Gray Noise. We all did. Oh. Yeah, but <laughs> but Johnny. <laughs> uh, so what you're saying it's is called that swag twi- twi- stuff. stuff we, we all, all get. yeah we all got what, it. Hey. Well, clearly, what you're saying is that Twitter fame is not the not the equation because well, I mean, Luke, we didn't Luke got we it didn't get the swag because we were Twitter famous. We got the we got the swag because we invited him on the podcast. I don't know what you want me to say. Uh, Johnny's yeah, point how, is like Andrew Morris paid us off with with a T-shirt and a exactly. coffee mug oh to, get, to get some time. So, Andy, you got big wow. shoes to fill. I know, Did dude. You, That's Andy, how you got to get good know, coverage. We, we were we were so happy to have Andrew Morris on our podcast. I bet, and then, yeah. Uh, the week that that came out, I mean, it, it's I think it's the most popular. Andrew's episode. Andrew's awesome because yeah, he's an because awesome he's guy. so high intensity. I love his fun. energy, yeah. man. Yeah. yeah, but uh also that that week, that, like Gray Noise Twitter account tweeted out, it's like uh we're gonna we're gonna make an announcement, but Andrew was on like seven podcasts this week, <laughs> so like we'll, <laughs> when they drop, we'll <laughs> we're like oh dang, <laughs> we're not as special as we thought we were. Damn, Johnny's point and. And Andy's point, though, is like no matter how many Twitter followers you get in InfoSec, Oakley's not calling you and being like, hey, bro. <laughs> Unfortunately. That's saw you have 160,000 followers. You want to you want to wear some uh, some oaks Gunner, in a photo? Un- <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. Gunner glasses, Gunner glasses yeah. might might hit you up. And get some, uh, unfortunately, and unfortunately, Secret Labs is not going to see this podcast uh-huh. and be like, want to get sponsored? I'm <laughs> here for you, buddy. I mean, exactly. how many more Secret Labs chairs do we need? But, yeah, exactly. but the thing is, if Andy had as many followers and subscribers on Twitch as he does on Twitter, he would a thousand percent be sponsored 
by a bunch of gaming organizations. Oh, did this just turn into a shit podcast? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm saying that as a compliment. Like, <laughs> I say we just all go follow Andy on Twitch and watch him play WoW. I feel I like WoW. Yeah, dude. Yeah. So, listen, yeah. So that's where it's still like 2000, yeah. 2008, but the, Andy's the funny still thing uh, 2004, like, thank you very much. <laughs> Oh, the funny God. thing is, like, I haven't known I haven't known Andy as long as Jared, but I know Andy long enough to know when he starts to look off into the distance and smile, he's thinking of a roast. And so as soon as Luke said that, I didn't see Andy go like this. And it's like I was like, oh no, it's coming. Andy and I have been mutually supportive of our respective Twitch channels. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that that, that I'm gonna s- tell didn't the- go where I thought it was going to go. Andy, I thought you were going to say we've been respective of each other's like degradation of ego, like keeping <laughs> each other's ego in check. We definitely keep each other in check that, in that regard. Are we supposed and- to introduce Andy at some point? No. Uh, Andy, I'm- listen, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to explain to the, everybody a, a DM that Andy sent me one day. We were talking okay. and I figured out what it was. We were hyping each other up. And then all of a sudden he sends me a link to his Twitch that says, Come watch me play WoW. And I said, is the only reason why you want me to come watch WoW is so that your viewers go up? And he goes, yes. <laughs> that was it. Like, he talked me up for like 10 minutes. It's like, okay, wow. now come benefit me. Oh, <laughs> the man. The man's trying to get partner. What What is the level that you need to get? Is uh, well, there's a soci- or like affiliate, I think. And then there's partner. Luke, we know you know. The Twitch levels, yeah, it's yeah. just affiliate and partner. Like, yeah, the affiliate everyone gets with a certain set of requirements, and then yeah. partner you have to apply for, and they have to like approve you specifically. Oh dang! Yeah, yeah. So I think we're both affiliate, which technically places us at the same level. But I think that Andy has made a large multiple of the amount that I have from Twitch. I think I, I don't. I, I don't think that's true. I topped out at I think like eighty bucks. Yeah, so like little, so little that, that you can't actually you can't actually extract it out of the system. You have to get I, up to a hundred bucks or something like that for them to actually deposit it into your. <laughs> right, account. so they still have my money. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think well, I have, have to be your, inactive for like three years, and then they'll like cut me a check finally when I don't live here anymore, and like, <laughs> which is in like three months, and then just some random guy's gonna get an eighty dollar Twitch check. So should we talk about like infosec stuff, like? What do you think? Oh, oh man. Here we go. <laughs> man. We had a so pretty intense conversation so about this. <laughs> I know. I don't know if y'all remember to, that or not. You might as oh, well just hop you might as well hop right into it. Well, listen, I think so Give us your little thesis and then we'll tear it apart. Yep. <laughs> oh, keep in mind, I'm everybody kidding, the whole audience, keep in I'm mind. Just kidding. The, the really cool thing about this podcast is a while I just want to give a little backstory. A while back, um, one thing I really appreciate about Andy is he always likes to challenge us on the detection team. And what I mean by that um, is he likes to challenge our methodology or our thought process to help us. I don't think it's necessary to tear apart what we think, but to also, but to more importantly, like help us dive deeper into that thought process um, so that we can actually help organizations out better. And you might so, even say, I like to challenge your paradigms. Oh, oh, you see what oh, I did there? Man. Okay, so That's moving on. So, but, um, a, wh- a while back, uh, Andy reached out to me and then about a question I thought was very intriguing. We had a conversation about it, and then I brought Luke and Jared in on the conversation. I'll let Andy talk about what the conversation is because how he opened it up to me was very um, well thought out and said. So uh, I will toss it to you, Andy. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure how well thought it was. I, my memory is pretty bad for this kind of thing, so I'm not going to be able to tell you like what the exact wording was. But I can kind of tell you what the spirit was and like 
kind of where my headspace was. Um, so before we start, like, I will say that, like, the opinion that I had changed as a result of the conversation that we had, because I came, I came at y'all with like a pretty bombastic take. You should know? we, should we pretend like that conversation did not occur for the sake of the listener or should we just pick up where we left off? I think I think let's do a little little recap of that convo okay. and then yeah, continue yeah, the convo, okay. right? Gotcha. Okay. So little little recap of the convo. I think I I think I hit y'all with a pretty blatant statement. Yep. And I was like, listen, what is the point of detection? <laughs> like, what are we what are we doing here? Right. Well, your wasn't your thing like you don't have to detect if you just prevent. I mean, I'm reducing <laughs> it down quite significantly. I think I think my like greater like my 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 greater like mental state at the time was i think i i think what i was perceiving was a lot of attention on detection like a lot of attention on detection and to the point where i was thinking is that attention coming at the cost of ignoring other things that are also important right mm-hmm. So just to use like a really stupid example is like if you're going to have all your hosts like publicly addressable and just like hanging out there on the Internet and you've got like Windows XP systems out there that have never been patched. Just give you like the worst case possible scenario just to kind of like demonstrate what my point is. You're not going to be able to mitigate the risks presented by that with just detection. You, You can't. You cannot. And it's the same story with modern enterprises where you've got your LAN, you've got your perimeter firewall, you've got access control, you've got directory services, which we all love. You've got uh, vul- vulnerability management. You've got like uh, you know software patches that have to have to be deployed and all this kind of stuff, right? You got Wi-Fi uh, networks that have to be secured, you know. And so I think my, I think. Where I was, like my headspace at the at the time was like information security is more than detection. And yep. I didn't really see that being part of the conversation at the time on Twitter, various slacks, all this kind of stuff. Like so, like some breach would happen or some uh new awesome exploit would come out. And it seemed like a lot of the attention, more attention than what I thought was appropriate, was dedicated 100% to how do we detect this. A good example is uh, Durkion came out with uh, his PrivExchange uh, method, right? Durkion's awesome. Durkion's brilliant, right? So Durkion comes out with that, and people are like, all right, how do we detect this? Okay, so if the packet is like has this information in it and like this event happens on the DC and then this thing happens over here and this thing happens over here. And I'm over here scratching my head and I'm like, what if we fixed the privileges that make the situation abusable in the first place instead of dedicating all of our effort to detecting somebody trying to abuse something that you can fix? Like you don't just, you don't just let, uh, software go out of date, like you patch software, you run a vulnerability scanner and you find out like, oh, we got we got critical vulnerabilities on these systems because of these missing patches. Your reaction to that isn't, 
how do we detect if somebody tries to throw Heartbleed or MSO8067 or whatever? Your, oh, your first call should be, and I think in most effective organizations is, let's patch it. Let's fix it. Yeah, maybe it's it's similar to like you don't have a you don't lock the door, but then you're like, okay, well, how do I know when somebody comes through the door? And yeah. you're kind of saying like, well, you could also yeah. just lock the door and yeah. then all, maybe supplement that with a detection of somebody unlocking the door. I'm glad you. I'm really glad you bring up that analogy. I think you're really good at analogies, Jared. Robbie's better, but you're pretty good. He he, he actually is. Yeah. as much as it hurts, it pains to say. He's, but he's way better at it. You think about like you think about like attack paths in Active Directory. Right. Surprise, surprise. I want to talk about that. Right. Um, and you think about an enterprise, you've got tens of thousands of systems, you've got credentials that are being sprayed all over the place, which results in like abusable uh, logons being everywhere. So I can steal a token or I can just get a plain text password, whatever. And you got flat networks. Right. And so a while ago, I tried to think of like, what's a good analogy for this situation? And it's like, you've got a house with half a million rooms in it, nobody knows what door their key will open or what key anybody else's key will open. And every time you unlock a door, you leave a copy of your key in that room. And you're not going to install half a million cameras in every single room, like half a million cameras across the entire building, one, one camera per room. You're not going to do that. Because you can't staff that. It's cost prohibitive. And you have maintenance costs, et cetera, political buy-in, whatever. And also, more importantly, it's not going to be effective. Because half a million cameras, how do you how do you observe those? How do you automatically determine, uh, well, wait a minute. Oh, this is actually Mike holding Alice's key to open a door that Cliff has access to normally. You're not going to do it. So... Instead of trying to detect like that problem, why don't we try to fix the problem somehow? Man, man, you know what I mean? keys more, more effectively, basically. Get to some point where we actually in, in can, that, can have like least privilege, right? Yeah, and like and okay. and and know like what what rooms does anybody's key open, right? Yeah. Okay. So let me let me uh, summarize kind of yeah. the thought was yeah. that uh, it's very popular for the community whatever we define that as let's just define that as like the chatter on twitter and maybe conference presentations to uh to focus on the detective controls that you could put in place uh for certain attacks right yeah um and what you're saying is that nobody maybe hyperbolizing a little bit but nobody really talks about the preventative controls that you can use to maybe prevent that attack from happening in the first place or maybe supplement the detective controls right i I th- like I have a few ideas of why that might be and there's there's like kind of a a bit of an incentive aspect to it. Um one aspect is like for for example, like when I work with clients, the thing that I focus on is the detection and resp- so you talked about infosec, right? So infosec yeah. is big big thing conceptually. But I like I focus on detection and response which explicitly doesn't have the term prevention in it, right? Um, and that the like the way that I define that is that's the the program that is responsible for detecting and responding to you know attacks within the or like risk within the enterprise, um, and 
and so that like you're already kind of starting with that perspective which is focused on how do you detect things um and like kind of the idea is generally like especially in a larger organization there are other people and processes in place to to focus on the preventative aspect yeah. so like there's a patch management team or like a vulnerability yeah. management team right um now like that doesn't mean that you shouldn't or couldn't you know work through a detection realize that there's an, an opportunity for prevention that maybe somebody else hasn't thought about and go that direction i think uh like from my experience when i was in the military um a lot of times the way that i've i kind of like was incentivized at least i don't know that this is right necessarily but the way that i was incentivized was figure out how you could do it without the bureaucracy mm -hmm. right yeah and so like this is how i got interested in powershell so there was there was this thing to where is like you know this was before edr existed for all intents and purposes and so we were literally running uh you know scripts to collect things and you know collect telemetry pull it back into an excel spreadsheet and then we'd do like pivot tables to try to find things like we didn't even have splunk at the time i think i think we had like arcsight was the but nobody we didn't have like support and nobody knew how to use arcsight at the time it's like cowboy um, infosec yeah for sure and so like we we uh we had some like c developers and they would try to they would write a pro we'd say oh we need you know to collect this information and they would write a program but the problem was is there was this certification accreditation process for if you want to put something on the air force enterprise you had to go through this process but that the air force certification accreditation process was created to facilitate uh design and building of you know fighter jets not yeah software yeah and so like it's not streamlined in in a way that's efficient for for us to be able to use it and so uh I found a loophole and the loophole was if it's a script, then it's already been like PowerShell has been accredited as part of like the Windows operating system being accredited. And so if it's a script, you're just doing something that it already can do, which I understand technically the same thing is true of a C program, but sure. like you're arguing with people that don't understand that. Right? Yeah, right. So um, if it's a script, then like you could already do it. And so you might as well like, so you could do that. Scripts are allowed. And that like kind of the idea was, generally speaking you you can do things in like a c program that you can't do in a in a powershell script well that turns out to not be true as we all learned from like matt graber's kind uh -huh. of stuff with with powersploit and so then i just started doing powershell stuff and made everything everything that i wanted to do with c i, I did in powershell instead and that's how i got interested in powershell to begin with um, i think the same thing goes with prevention to some degree because yeah. pre like uh so one big thing about the defensive side, I think, or yeah, we'll we'll just say def defense generically is uh, it's it's kind of like a team sport more so than the red side, I would say, to where like you have lots of stakeholders, you have to get mm. approvals for a lot of things that maybe you wouldn't have to do on the on the red side. Not saying that you don't have to get approvals for anything on the red side, but generally speaking, everything is you you like you have to get stakeholder buy in and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um. And so when you're trying to put a preventative measure in, that's potentially stopping something from happening. And so there's like a, a, an active component to it. And so the like the red tape to get that added from like the end user's perspective, like the the, de you know, the defender's perspective uh, is relatively difficult as yeah. to where um, just writing a detection is kind of passive. And so uh in, in most cases it's passive yeah. and so like and so then you and like you control the response action so like you can detect something and then mitigate it but you have like there's a conceptually a person in between like you could just have you know some sort of automation in there and then it's not right but 
Um, I want to I want to add gen- on to what you're saying. Generally speaking, yeah, you have you have some sort of like human in there, and so it's just there's uh, kind of like less constraints, I guess, put on the defenders for how you do how you do that. Plus, there's like an aspect of sometimes the like for like an exploit, um, and I'm I'm again kind of generalizing, but for an exploit, it's like well, that's the vent- the vendor's going to prevent that, but in the interim, I'm going to detect it. Is kind of the thought process. Sure. Not saying that that's a hundred percent right, but like when you talk about things like uh, least privilege, like yeah. obviously that is not the vendor's problem because the vendor designed yeah. the solution and then you implemented your version of it. And if you implemented it badly, it's not the vendor's fault. Yeah. To some degree. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with like everything you're saying. And I have a couple of examples that I think support what you're saying. And I want to say the same thing that you're saying, but in a, in a different way. So you were talking about like, Find something that gets around the bureaucracy or find something that doesn't have like an active component that is more passive than active. Uh, What I've seen in my, in my career is whenever there's a problem, some kind of security problem, the solutions almost always come with some kind of friction for the administrators or the users of that system. Um, but not always. Uh, and so like one example of this, which I love going back to and I love bringing up and talking about is Microsoft Laps. So on the pen test side, on the red team side, in the days before Microsoft Laps, local admin on one machine almost always meant local admin everywhere because the built-in uh, RID 500 account on the computer would have the same password across every other system in the enterprise because it was created either uh, through you know an image being deployed across like different systems um, or the password is being set by some kind of um, system setup automation process or whatever. But what that resulted in was on the pen test side, on the red team side, we fish for access. We get local admin on one box the RID 500 account is going to be the same password across the entire enterprise. Find a system where a domain admin is logged on, pivot over there and steal this password and you're done. You know, and, you know, of course you have your objective to, to get to and stuff like that. But it was so easy. It was so easy to escalate the domain by escalating rights on one machine. Microsoft Laps totally changed that dynamic and required very, very little of admins to implement it. In one instance, we saw a team of, uh, I think, three or four people deploy Microsoft Labs across an enterprise that had something like half a million endpoints in like two weeks. Just absolutely mind-numbing speed, just absolutely mind-blowing, you know, how fast they were able to, able to do that. And so this one, <laughs> this one easy trick, you know, like pen testers hate them, right? Um, but it's it's an example, I think, where it was a security control that saw the problem very, very clearly, wanted to solve that one particular problem and only focused on that one particular problem, came up with a solution that required very little effort from the admins, and it introduced 
just a li- the, the tiniest amount of friction for the future. So instead of just being able to use one password across the entire enterprise, now you have to fetch the plain text password from AD using an account that has that privilege for whatever, whatever computer it is that you're targeting. So just the tiniest amount of friction. Other controls have quite a bit of friction. Um, controls and then also um, best practices. Like most best practice, like tiered administration, least privilege, are not practical for the vast majority of organizations to implement. They're just non-starters. They're not going to happen. At, le- uh, at least once the, like, you get to a point of no return, kind of. Like, so, like, if you're, star- if you're building a new network from scratch, building tiered administration is probably pretty reasonable, I would imagine. I don't know. Well, but then you, then have, you have more, to maintain you have more experience. It. You have to maintain yeah, it over true. time, and it's so easy to screw it up. So it's a non-starter, and it's not possible to maintain. And the people who start to try to implement that, they realize pretty quickly that we're not going to be able to keep this up unless we ha- like, have like a staff of 20 or 30 full-time people it, auditing privileges the, all the time. Yeah, it's the problem that uh, the people that have access to make changes, so like your general like system administrators, don't understand the tiered administrative concept well enough to not no. violate those rules. No, I mean, the, the, the high-level concept is very simple. Like, you've got tier zero, which is your most critical assets. You've got tier one, which are your server admins. Tier one should never have access to anything in tier zero. And then yep. you just kind of, like, branch that down until you get to, like, you know, your user land, right? So the, the high-level concept is very, very simple. It, I guess but, I'm asking, how does somebody, like, how do you, I, I get, like, I understand conceptually, but eventually there's drift from that. Absolutely, concept, which is the which is the problem, right? How do, absolutely? Like, if it's simple to understand, how does that drift occur? And like, I understand that, like, eventually, if you're not paying attention, it just kind of happens. But like, how does it happen? It's because yeah. somebody that's that's allowed to make changes isn't holding themselves to that standard, right? Yeah, or I mean, there's not so a pr- there's not a there's not a process to support uh, exactly. Like, yeah, for, it's, enforcing it, that standard. at the at the end of the day, it's just much easier said than done. Like, yeah, I want to I want to point out that I think the a couple of things where I, I see the value of detection when it comes to prevention um, is detection allows for, say, a new exploit or a new attack comes out. And we do know that we all have experience with it takes a long time to get, like, say, preventative measures applied in the organization, at least in a a correct manner. Right. And so what a detection does is it allows to cover that gap in the environment, say, hey, like if this does happen to my environment, kick off. I do think there is value. This is a cool conversation that we on the detection team had at SpectreOps about threat hunting. For example, like we believe bad threat hunting is whenever no output is applied to the SOC, right? So if you aren't okay. outputting um, anything, because the reality is everything lives to support the SOC. And I would I would imagine that preventative measures are applied, security operations are applied in there somewhere. So maybe, this is just an idea, maybe one of the outputs that could happen whenever a new exploit happens, right, and a detection is put into play for the SOC, maybe one of those outputs could be going to the security operation team or whoever is in charge of that and saying, hey, we have a detection set up for X, um, a preventative measure to help this in our organization could be Y. Um, 
but at least we have that gap covered in the environment. Yeah. We have that blanket. Yeah. Um, because if we, because oftentimes we see people like, oh, we can prevent this. Let's put it in our pipeline. Two, three months go by at least sometimes, or could be potentially, no preventative measures are made. And then at that time, that you could have been attacked at any point. And as, as Andy, you like to talk about a lot when, when it comes to changing security roles, man, like, I didn't know this until I started the company, but a lot of people haven't set up AD correctly. So re-going through those yeah. groupings, re-going <laughs> through all those things could break a lot of operations. So a lot of people say, oh, yeah. I don't want to touch it. Yeah. Okay, well, now at that point, we have to at least do something when it comes to this attack to yep. give our organization an opportunity to say, hey, we're covered. That's the yeah, number right. one question that an admin will ask whenever you tell them, like, you need to make this change in Active Directory, no matter what the change is. The what's number one question break? is going to be, what's that going to break? Yep. And that is a totally legitimate question. And it's a question that the uh, consultants, the providers, the vendors who I believe will succeed the most have a good answer to that question. And uh, a good answer to that question that that results in the organization being safer, right? Whether that means the the, the change does get put into place or like what you're saying with detection, that you have a strong enough mitigation against that being abused that you can detect and respond uh, if if it is if it is abused. There's two. So I, you know, I've never set up a sock. I've never run a sock. I've never worked in a sock. So I I can only really share your, like what my like outside perspective was on some organizations where I saw from the red team perspective that these guys are like, you know, these guys and gals were just like absolutely killing it, you know. Uh, one that comes to mind is an organization that has problems, <laughs> let's say. So one of the problems they have is everybody everybody has local admin rights on their own machine. Big problem, right? And, you know, one of those people get fished. That means the the, the security of that, of that one system is totally compromised, right? Um. So the uh, detection, the the uh, the sock, I, I guess to to put it more simply, um, they that that was the environment that they were operating within. Is assume that any attacker who gets access has local admin rights on the machine that they popped, and so th th those are the constraints that they operated under, and they're not going to go to the CISO, the CTO, the CIO, whatever, and tell that person you need to get rid of local admin rights across the board because it's just not going to happen. So detection, response, whatever, becomes this like mitigating force against the fact that anybody who gets compromised, there's like serious consequences for that, right? The other one is kind of the, is kind of the reverse, is there's an organization that whenever um, uh, a new exploit would come out or a new patch would come out or whatever, they had a team that would uh, analyze that understand what is the impact of this. Uh, let's go to our asset inventory and see what systems are affected by this. Let's do a test run of a patch against a small subset of those systems and see what the effect is, see what breaks, make changes, make mitigations, uh, readjust, and then once they're comfortable with deploying that to the rest of the environment, they do. So super, super good vuln management, patch management practices. And then they had like zero of that on the network side. 
So everything on the endpoints was super, super locked down, super, super secure, you know, really, really great security there. But then on the network, not so much. And we so often, the, I mean, we also often see that where it's like, yeah, it's very host based in some organizations sure. or very network yeah. based in some yeah. organizations. People are, it's, yeah, it's always one or the other. Yeah, it's, I, I don't think I've ever seen like both get equal attention. I don't think I've ever seen that. I think I've seen it in one client. Yeah. But they're also a public partner. So. Yeah. Um, okay. So one thing that I thought was interesting from what you said, Andy, is like I think I think that like from my perspective, there's a perfect way to I have like a conceptual model of how I would approach detection and response in a perfect world, right? And then like as a consultant, my job is to uh, evaluate the constraints of the yeah. organization, and constraints can be financial, technological, uh, you know, uh, political political yeah all there's i have a whole list of different sure. types of constraints but yeah um but yeah they could be anything and then you say okay given those constraints what what's the short-term solution like how can i implement the like my perfect plan as best as i can given those constraints in the short term and then yeah. what are the what are the constraints that are affecting us from being successful the most and then like so like when you and i like i know you're just kind of talking off the cuff but when like when the thing is is like oh everybody's a local admin and we're not going to raise that because that would be hard i think your your responsibility is to raise that to their attention and if they choose to like this is risk risk acceptance 101 right if they choose to yeah. say hey that's not going to change like we have no intention of changing even though you've showed me why that's bad and what like what the impact of that can be then now that becomes something like that's an assumption uh that you now have to operate within kind of like what you what you were saying i think what you said just now about like coming in as a third-party consultant and operating under the constraints and coming up with like a short-term, medium-term solution. And then maybe also giving like long-term guidance, like, you know, here's what's going to help you in the short-term, but really long-term you need to do all the, these harder things, right? These like more organizational things. I think if, if I were, if I were a CISO, I think one of the things that, that might keep me up at night is how much of our InfoSec strategy is driven by short-term solutions like how much of our long-term yeah. <laughs> like security is dependent on solutions that were intended to be short-term right a lot of CISOs aren't there for long-term is one of the that's true like you don't have to worry yeah. about five years down the road because you're gonna have moved like that's kind of the state of industry now is like nobody's nobody really stays with companies for a lifetime anymore it's um, funny you mentioned that because this is the same this is the same in sports right like there's yeah how many like uh you know there's uh a bunch of bunch of soccer players like uh steven gerrard for example played for the same team his entire career and then uh at the end that was like a huge celebration is that he was a one club man and then uh mm. i think i think he went to the mls actually after that but like the mls doesn't actually count so nobody nobody worried about that <laughs> but um but like nobody does that. Like it's so rare for somebody to like even in sports to stay with the same team. Like you don't have, um, I know like Michael, like Kobe Bryant for instance played for the Lakers forever. But now it's like basically you have like Kyrie Irving is just switching teams all the time to figure out like where's the best fit or Kevin Durant's mm. switching teams. Same thing happens, and it's part of it's like where can I get the most exposure? Where can I have the best chance of winning a championship? Where can I get the most money? Um, that's that's the drive instead of like that that loyalty and i think in like in infosec in particularly because i'm aware mm -hmm. of that and i like kind of know the trends of the industry um but maybe also just 
in general, this is like the 21st century and that's how it works. People are, uh, are not like as organizationally focused, they're more individually focused, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it, it does hinder your ability to implement a long-term strategy, I think. Yeah. That almost makes I'm, me that's think completely like, off the cuff. I just made that up as I was going, but I think it's probably at least somewhat true. That that almost makes me think that like the uh, kind of regular rapid fire consulting engagements may actually be kind of a result of that lack of longevity and leadership in a lot of organizations. I think we've seen a lot of the times where a a new sizzle will come in. And one of the first things they'll do is bring in outside consultants to help them to get a grip on what is the state of security of that organization. There's lots of reasons for that, right? A lot of political reasons for that. Like you can't necessarily trust the people who have been running the ship to tell you the state of the ship um, when you when you show up as a new captain, right? So I don't know. You know I, I, I do think you that also have a, a you also have a desire to make your mark, right? So like, yeah, I think that happens with in sports as well, right? Like you you want to change something so that like it's now yours, and sure. so you almost have like more of a desire to make the change than it, than you do to evaluate whether that change should happen or needs I, to happen. I think one of the things too is um, a good example of you know creating a detection for a gap or a preventative measure isn't yet set in place or reality isn't going to be set in place in the future. Um, we had a client once that wanted a detection for PS exec inside the environment, basically malicious PS exec, mm-hmm. um, which was super difficult, obviously, mm-hmm. because they're, they were allowing admins to use PS exec whenever they wanted. And so the question that myself and a coworker had was, why don't you just not allow PS exec in the environment? Um, and we were quickly told that like, that wasn't an option because devs and admins just like to use it. So I think, I hate to say this, and I don't know a tactful way to say this, so I'm just going to say it. Um, <laughs> it's kind of what the pot. I think when it comes to prevention, a lot of the times, too, there is a paradigm shift that needs to happen in your day-to-day processes as either an admin or just a day-to-day user. I think a lot of the reason why that paradigm shift doesn't happen is due to laziness and not wanting to change their process, whether it's for the good of the organization, but the reality is the ease of me as an end user to do my job how I want to is more important than what's, what is more beneficial and safe for Boom. the environment at hand. Yeah. You talk about friction. Yeah. Right. I don't want to like, learn how to, I don't want to learn how to use PowerShell remoting because I'm comfortable using RDP. Exactly. How many, how many organizations have tried to deploy pause, GIA, JIT, et cetera. And you get to a point where, okay, it's all working. This is how you're going to use it. Don't touch it. And then what's the first thing that admins do? They find a way around it, right? Like, well, I could go through this pause to get to the DC, or I could take advantage of the fact that I can like just fetch my credential from the, the PAM, the Privilege Access Management System, and then just hit the DC directly from my daily driver workstation. See it all the time. See it every day. And... And that goes back to my point earlier about like whatever controls get introduced, the level of friction that that puts on admins matters. And I, I, I disagree that the problem is laziness. I, I, I don't agree with that. I, I think that there are, I don't know, how, how, many, how many IT professionals are there? Millions? Mm-hmm. Like 
Well, what would be like a different alternative to someone saying, okay, this is the process in the environment that we need to go through to make everything more secure. And then Evan saying, I don't want to do that because it makes my job harder. Here's what I'll, here's what I'll say about that. So I don't know another term besides laziness. I, here, here's, 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 my, here's my perspective on that, right? So like zooming out a little bit from that. So I, I mean, this, this, might, this might feel like a little bit of a shift, but I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, mm-hmm. okay? And in that tradition, just like in, in a lot of other like Christian tradition and, and other like faith traditions, a lot of what helps people are like simple little phrases, little axioms. So the golden rule, treat others as you would have them treat you. Easy, right? And it makes sense. It's so, it's so concise and so simple. One of the phrases that helps me when I'm trying to think about like problems like this is a problem well stated is half solved. And so I think what happens is we start getting all this input about, well, you know, like they're using PS exec. And, oh, well, the network is flat. And, oh, well, they're not using the pause. And all this input starts coming in. You have all these different problems that are, like, entering your mind and entering your brain. And I don't know. I, I, I personally believe that, you know, my brain is pretty simple. So, like, I can't process all that stuff all at the same time. And so what I try to do is, like, take a step back and try to think about, like, what is the actual problem? that is causing all of this consternation and all of these issues? What is the root cause of all of these anxieties and fears and issues and even going greater than that, breaches, like ransomware incidents? Like what is the actual problem? And can we identify that problem? Can we bring vocabulary to it that helps us understand what the real problem is? And then once we do that, come up with a solution that actually helps us solve the real problem. So that's, that's kind of the way that I try to think about it, not necessarily in a way that has anything to do with the admins, the software vendors, Windows, Active Directory, the network, whatever. Like, forget, forget all of that. Forget all of that. Just what I try to do is think, like, given all those things, given the situation that we're in, what is the actual problem that we are facing? And I do have thoughts about what that is, but I don't want to talk about it like in this particular setting because we're going to release a post next week about it. But, <laughs> but like that's kind of like Simple my reaction. Simple plug. Simple plug. <laughs> yeah. no. that's, 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 that's my reaction. Oh, yeah. I guess this is going to air next week, so it's already, it's already out, I think. Yeah, probably. Well, well whatever. Aaron, I don't, this, this is, this this will is come out Monday. On, on I think Monday. your thing is Tuesday, right? Okay, it'll come out tomorrow. It'll come out tomorrow. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's all I got. Um, yeah, I, I want to say, man, I want to say I 100% agree with when identifying a problem, if thought about it in depth enough, as part, at least a fraction of a solution should be thought of during that as well. I think it's very easy for us as humans in general to identify problems or problem sets and then be like, okay, well, the solving the problem issue is not my job. Um, sure. And that yeah. isn't, and that's a very, very dangerous yeah. perspective to have, especially yeah. in our line of work. Mm-hmm. And so, one thing like that we really have to work on, um, or we have to make sure we try to do is if you want to identify a problem, at least come up with a solution, at least to start to have the conversation of a solution. Because if you just say, oh, 
just take out PS exec in the environment. I hate the word just anytime anyone mm-hmm. says just, I'm like, Ugh, because there's so much more t- that goes to that. And so much time that's applied to that. And it's with time and or exactly with time yeah. and the organization, that's money. And so it's like all these things play a big part into just, I think, oh, yeah. Jared, I think it's extremely, yeah. I'll, yeah. Give me one. It's extremely easy to identify systems are complex, right? And if you, if you avoid the, desire or the temptation to oversimplify complex systems, which we all have, right? It's very easy to say, this is the reason why this is bad when it's not really the reason, because there's a lot of different variables. Um, Systems are complex and it's easy to identify where systems are inefficient or broken or, uh, you know, not fair or whatever it is. Um, But it's extremely difficult to build a system that solves those problems and solves all the other problems that the original system already solved. Yeah. Right. And so like that's whenever people are trying to, you know, talk trash about some system of, you know, how we approach detection or prevention or whatever, or just in life, it's way harder to solve it than you're making it sound. Anyway, take it away. And that's, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think like coming up with effective solutions is incredibly difficult. And it's one of the, and, and a lot of times, when the solution presents itself, um, it seems obvious in hindsight. It's like, well, duh, of course we should have different local admin passwords for every system in the network. And of course that should be something that you easily run. And of course the credential should be fetched only by authorized users, right? Like I always go back to Microsoft Laps. When when Laps came out, like pen testers and red teamers, like I, or at least the ones that I was hanging around with, we were like, it's over. That's it. That's the end of pen testing. There's nothing we can do. Like we get local admin on one box. There's no way we're going to find local admin anywhere else. Of course, now we know that that's not true, right? But it was it was such a foundational shift in our our tactics or our techniques, right? On the on the pen test and red team side, it was it was it was it was world moving. I thought, and so like that kind of solution that can come out that has that level of effectiveness and elegance is extraordinarily rare uh and i think we should i think we should look to those uh as as examples of things that can actually help us solve the really really big problems that that we're facing we as in like organizations that are trying to be secure so i kind of wanted to go back to something that i think was really interesting that you said andy which is how many organizations are operating on very, very short-term solutions for longer than they should. Um, and that resonates with me a lot because like, we're consultants, right? So we go to a lot of different organizations that want to increase their capabilities. And sometimes we walk in and it's just a, it's a bundle of like band-aids and duct tape, right? Just everything oh, yeah. is kind of bolted together. Um, and I think a little bit of that plays into the, the short-term of, um, you know, top-level security personnel and like changing directions. But um, like, it reminds me of when I would uh, go play golf with my dad growing up and he's a, like a professional golf player. So he was like pretty dang good. And I would get out there on the course and every shot I hit was to the left. And I'd be like, yo, how do I fix this? And he's like, we can't hear. He's like, your solution for today is to aim to the Mm. right. Like Mm. the, you can't fix it on the field. So you just correct for it mentality. And then, that's always under the assumption that you're going to go practice later and fix it. And I think a lot of organizations mm-hmm. skip that step, right? They sure. do the thing, they make it work because, um, 
Now, unfortunately, the reality of a lot of security is it's very reactive, right? So uh, a new attack comes out, like Heartbleed comes out, right? And so you get you freak out. You got to fix it right now. Um, you're like, oh, we don't have the telemetry for this, but we kind of hacked it together with a script or whatever, and the script works. And you're like, well, we'll make it like more professional later. And then you never do, but the thing still works. So you do it, and it never ends up high enough on the priority list to like make it better. But the more band-aid solutions and duct tape solutions that you add, just it bogs down the efficiency of the whole machine. Yeah, and I so you I don't think, have a you don't have a solid core. Yeah, at that point, right? At, at that point, you're just adding to your big ball of duct tape, and it all it is is duct tape, right? So like it's just layers and layers of slow, like sticky methods that you kind of put together very reactively, um, and so I think that is one of the biggest common themes that I've seen in these in organizations is uh, we fixed it for now, we'll fix it later, and then it it just doesn't yeah. come back up again. I think you're right. I think I think many organizations are like that, but not all. Yeah. And over the past however long I've been doing this, I've been lucky to go into lots of different organizations and see how lots of different teams handle information security or how they handle like their particular slice of information security for that organization. And one of those organizations was kind of known as like the crucible uh at uh ATD like the pen test team that a lot of us came from well pen test and also detection wow right right Jared yep yep um <laughs> thanks for forgetting about me, <laughs> sorry buddy um so this 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 was kind of like it was going to be what separated like the greenhorns from the seniors right it's like if you go in there and you can have success like you've proven yourself and you're you're actually um is this, good at really what you big, say you're is this good where at. you got like the really big sample data set from? For Bloodhound? Yeah. It's where Bloodhound was born out of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah out yeah, of out okay. of necessity. But like what you said, Luke, that reminded me of this was there are organizations out there that are doing the preventative controls very, very effectively. This was one of those organizations. And and what it what it made me think of was you know, we see on Twitter, like, here's this detection for this. Here's how you can pull this event ID. Here's how you can do this, 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 right? Like, lots of likes, lots of retweets. Great. You know, good. The people at this organization who are doing, like, the, like, patch impact analysis on a subset of systems before rolling it out to the rest of the organization and then putting in patch deployment auditing over time they're not on Twitter. They don't care. They're, they're not out there talking about like, oh man, here's, here's the methodology that I came up with to ensure that the Heartbleed patch was effectively applied and stayed in place over the past nine months. As far as I know, well, the, the individuals who I, who I am, am thinking of in particular, they're not out there. And as far as I know, I've never seen anything out there that is getting the kind of attention from a proactive yeah. security standpoint as these other things do like red team is so sexy it's so so cool yeah. like here's here's this way to abuse this thing in windows gets lots of attention gets lots of eyes on it cool it's, it has that sexy element right then uh here's a detection for that that's also pretty cool and that gets a lot of attention then in the meantime the attackers are just running around doing ps exec <laughs> because everybody is local admin on every other system 
And in a lot of places, nothing's being done about that. Yeah, that's okay. So that's that's interesting because like I, I'll start off by saying, of course, it's important to be interdisciplinary and have multiple like exposure to multiple different concepts within the same, you know, within life in general. Like I've learned a lot sure. about my philosophy of how I approach detection and response from listening to psychologists, for instance. Right. Okay. Um, and like, and so it's all, it's all valuable. Um, but that is, that is interesting because there's, uh, like, even if those people, this is, you know, completely non-scientific, this is my, my opinion, but even if those people were on Twitter, they wouldn't be as popular as their kind of counterpart of equal value on the red, red side, for instance. Totally right? so like you, you think totally about agree. like, you have, you have people that their day job is to be a detection engineer and they go when they go to black hat they take a red teaming class yeah because because it's fun right? yeah um and like the guy you know, the guy who you know created laps fun? the the guy who created laps i think he has like 300 followers on twitter yep yep yeah what's not fun is doing systemic changes <laughs> you know what i mean because like it's yeah. not because like so one of the problems is is that like to roll out laps and make it valuable that was a long long road oh yeah right to oh, release yeah. an to release an exploit, like sure you got to wait your six months or whatever the uh, you know disclosure timeline is or whatever, but like then you just drop it and everybody's like, oh damn, that's cool, but like, lapse is not like as much as like you you are expressing that you really appreciate lapse, like it might not even be cool to you necessarily, like cool to like me? it doesn't it well it doesn't have like the sexy factor even to you who appreciates the value of it. You have the sexy factor. And you have the effectiveness factor. Yeah. And, those and a lot things. of times those are two totally different things yep. and they don't intersect at all. Um, no one's going to the how to uh, deploy laps properly. Uh, black hat talk. Class. Right. Because it wasn't yeah. accepted because it's not cool. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think another big problem is that. The effectiveness of laps for somebody who did pen testing for a long time and who was affected by it, it's easy to understand the impact of it. And it's easy to understand how effective it is. Like anybody who's been a pen tester from before laps and post laps knows what I'm talking about. They know they know how effective it is. But conveying that effectiveness and measuring that effectiveness is very, very difficult to actually do. And so what you said earlier, Jared, reminded me of this, is that any control that comes out, if it's not measuring the effectiveness of what it's what it's doing or if there's no way to measure the effectiveness of what it is then why should it get attention like if you if you have to have years and years of experience to understand the impact of something what value does that have if you can't communicate that effectiveness to the people who are making the decisions in the organization i would argue that it it, it actually has like very little net value even though it has real value if you can't communicate that value to other people, it may as well have no value. So I think one of the most critical things with products, as an example, is they measure how effective they are. Or that, that can introduce a, a conflict of interest, but they have a way that it, you can measure how effective yep. they are, right? Yep. Yeah, and like Miter's trying to do that from a less biased position. Sure. Or like unbiased position. Although sure. like that doesn't mean that MITRE's metrics align with what I think are important metrics, for instance, right? So there's, I mean, that's, 
it's a it's an interesting thing about our industry is uh so like one of the things that we kind of were going down the path of is this idea that like systems are complex and like it's easy to spot spot the flaws in systems and like i think that's that goes towards uh not like not trying to be political and I'm not speaking from a political, I'm speaking more from a temperamental perspective, but like conservatism versus liberalism, sure. which is like not to be aligned with like Republicans and Democrats, but like conservatives are give us a system and we're going to, you know, operate that system as effectively and efficiently as possible, regardless of what the outcome is. Right. And uh, liberalism mm -hmm. is like, Hey, we need to be, we need to think about the impacts of this. We need to determine whether or not the system is like, can be improved and make sure it doesn't stagnate and uh, that there's, you know, systems dispossess people or they have, you know, negative consequences when they become more efficient. Um, and so we, we should always question that. And one thing about InfoSec is like generally InfoSec is, or technology in general is more kind of liberal leaning, I would say. There's more liberal temperament temperament within, within technology. Um, and so like it's really easy to, or it's common for us to say, hey, this thing, doesn't work the way that I want it to. So here's my solution to it because we're very inventive. Like uh, the, the idea of liberalism is that you're also uh, like creative, right? So um, you're, you're inventive, you come up with your new solution and then you, you basically like that thing didn't work. So here's the new solution and mm. this is better. And then somebody else is going to come along and be like, your solution sucks. Here's a new solution. It's better. Instead of, you know, trying to get the 80% solution and operate that as effectively as possible. And I yeah. think that, that sometimes has uh, the resulting impact of not ever like getting past that short-term solution because it's always like this arms competition to see, like basically say <laughs> that other person's solution sucks. My solution is better here. Yeah. Here it is. And like, I'm guilty of it. Um, I think everybody here is probably guilty of it to some degree is like, we've kind of reinvented the wheel that somebody else put in place because it didn't exactly meet what we we intended for it to meet or like the you know the miter evals like when i read that uh i think oh well if i did this i would have done it differently because i have different different plans instead of taking it for what it is and trying to help make it more efficient but that like hmm. that i think that affects like community development so like one of the hard things about uh defense is there's it's very hard to take something that i create and make it widely applicable to everybody but that's because nobody is standardizing basically. And it's really hard to, to get to drive standardization or something that can be, you know, consumed by the larger audience. Um, and I think that generally has a little bit of like the impact of like a, like a, the more liberal leaning of technology is like, we want to be more creative. Um, and it, like, we could just reinvent the wheel because we're kind of inventive or entrepreneurial or those types of things, as opposed to the system exists and we just need to exist within the bureaucracy and execute that as efficiently as possible. Hmm. I don't know. It's just a thought that came up, came to mind. All I can think about is Microsoft laps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how much I love it. Cool. So one thing that uh, Johnny was kind of mentioning was PS exec. So I'm going back hmm. to the, back to what we talked about after we went back to what we've previously talked about. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think one thing that we have trouble with is, uh, so like there's, there's the aspect of, well, if the admins didn't use PS exec, then we wouldn't like, we would just detect PS exec and we would know is bad. And maybe there's better ways that admins could go about it. But I think that generally we as 
defenders are really bad at being able to differentiate between approved use and unapproved use. So like it's easy conceptually to detect PS exec. And like obviously there's different levels at which you could detect PS. So like yeah. look for PSEXE SVC dot yeah. exe to be running that that would be one la- layer of detecting ps exec but then it's like you know are you trying to detect sys internals ps exec or are you trying to detect like the concept of how ps exec you know pushes a file over a network share and then creates a service and executes that service and then provides some sort of you know command control channel um and then like okay so maybe there's an aspect of uh executing a service to provide some sort of command and control and so like even that's relatively simple to detect right but then once you've detected it, now it's like, you know, not everything that you detect with that is bad. And so how do you differentiate between um, approved use and, and unapproved use? And I think that's something that we are tremendously bad at. Um, because like to go to the prevention side, like you don't necessarily want to actually prevent that from happening because there may be a legitimate use case um, for, for instance, admins using that technology to gain access to a system. Yeah. Um, and so like, yeah, I don't know. I just, it's, it's very difficult for us to do that differentiation. And I yeah, think part I don't, of that is technological constraints. I can, I can only give you my perspective as somebody who's like operated as a red teamer in an environment that had a UEBM solution in place, like, uh, environmental user, behavioral. Yeah. 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 So like a solution that's trying to tell the difference between this user is doing something that they don't usually do. So they logged onto a machine that they've never logged onto before, and maybe that's bad, maybe it's not. So I can only tell you my experience in operating as a red teamer in an environment that had a solution like that. And my own experience was that, like with a lot of things that send alerts to somebody who has to do something about that alert, mm. which even me saying it in that, in that way frames the problem in, a, in the wrong way. But a solution that sends an alert to somebody who has to action that alert, it is dependent on that person actually taking some kind of oh, action geez. in the first place. It's also dependent on that person taking action fast enough that it disrupts the attack path, the greater attack path that I'm on, right? You're like pitching, you're pitching a batting practice to Johnny right now. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll, Johnny. Let me set you up, and then I'll let you take over after he finishes. Keep going. Sorry. Yep. Here's so let me let me lay out for you a, a potential scenario. Is let's say that instead of somebody uh, an adversary getting access into a network, mapping attack paths, and then manually executing an attack path, what if the entire process was automated? What if instead of all of that data collection all happening at once and giving you like a great detection opportunity. What if instead the attack path was explored one step at a time, you know, very quietly, very covertly, but also very quickly, as in as fast as software can run. So this worm lands on a system, it determines what systems this user has admin rights on, pivots to those systems, repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, in my own experience with analyzing, uh, you know, Bloodhound, uh, databases for our customers, let me rephrase that in my own experience with Bloodhound, 
the level the, the the number of steps that it would typically take to go from domain user level access up to domain admin level access is something like two and a half or three two and a half or three actual actions as in lateral movement or adding a member to a security group or giving myself some of the kind of privilege that I didn't have in the first place whatever two and a half three steps to go from domain user to domain admin and you think about how fast software runs and you think about how fast a worm can spread throughout a network if it's automated. Didn't, In uh, my own opinion, there's no way that a person can react fast enough that, oh, hey, this user pivoted over to this system. Let me think about that. Let me call the guy. Hey, is this you doing this thing? Oh, it's not you? Okay, we got something going on. All right, let me figure out how I get the logs from this computer. Oh, you know what? The... The win log beat thing stopped working three weeks ago. Let me go to the actual box. Oh, but wait a minute. I need to do that in a safe way that I don't put an abusable token on the system. So I'm going to use my EDR uh, agent or logs oh, to pull logs from the system. Meanwhile, you know, after you got the alert, you know, three hours ago, the worm or the operator or whatever gone. already has domain admin at level access. They've already got like kernel level persistence on the domain controller, on every domain controller, and on every SCCM system and WSUS system. They've already pivoted up into Azure and are putting persistence in place into Azure. And you're still trying to figure out if Cliff usually logs onto Bob's machine, like the first step of that attack path, right? Yep. Let me take over. Let me take over. Okay. So, so Jared's like, I'm about to end this man's entire. No, career. no, no, no. I, I'm, I think I'm. I think I'm just the amount of but, stretching from these two while you were talking. They're like, all right, let me, yeah. let me limber up here. We I, go I don't, I get think, close I don't to think, the mic. I don't think we generally disagree, but um, I think that like so. There's two valuable, at least in the context of this conversation. There's two valuable outcomes of of detection. One is to stop what's happening, which you just proposed a reason why that's impractical in a lot of cases. And then there's also to know about it, right? Now yeah. you could make it, you could make an argument that knowing about it is bad, right? Because it's a liability. And if you don't know, like mm. ignorance is bliss. Sure. So like, I think, I think like mor morally, you probably would like to know about it regardless of whether you stopped it, right? Let's just kind of go on that assumption. Oh, so there, that. There, there is value in knowing that it happens so that you can evaluate what the out like what the result of that action was regardless of whether you could stop it or not i think yep. so that there is some value there um i have another point that i wanted to make about like training and making sure like you shouldn't have to like once you determine what the method is that you use to connect to a system you should train people sufficiently such that they don't have to like figure it out it's just second nature and like we go into that after a second in a second, but I, I want to get to Johnny's point because it, like he's releasing a blog post on like this ex exact topic next week. Oh, um, plug. or maybe maybe this will, maybe this will be out by the time uh, you listen to this, people. But um, there there are so detection is not the end of the pipeline, right? So like we have yeah. this idea called the funnel of fidelity, which talks about the det detection pipeline or like kind of the detection response process conceptually. So there's Collection, which is how do I know what's happening within my enterprise? Detection, which is how do I identify which of those events that I'm collecting are security relevant? There's triage, which is, you know, I, I identified security rele relevant events. Uh, are they actually something I'm interested in? Investigation, which is like what, what actually happened here? 
and then remediation, which is how do I clean it up, right? So at each of those points, and sometimes multiple times within each of those phases, uh, there's opportunities for uh, evasions or bypasses, right? So Mm -hmm. for instance, like, hey, you detected that this happened, uh, but the alert got generated and your tier one SOC analyst marked it as a false positive, even though it wasn't, right? So like, I, I think you call that a classification bypass, Johnny. And so like that, that mm-hmm. just means, hey, cool, your detection worked, but like the rest of the process didn't work. Mm-hmm. But, uh, or like maybe you, you didn't respond to it in time. And so there's a bypass action there. So like, I think that's interesting is that like, this idea of what we think of as detection engineers, which is, did I write a rule that's going to identify this thing as happening, is only a very small piece of the puzzle that kicks off a whole process. And like as an attacker, you could you could either target my rule or you could target the process. And with that, I'll let Johnny kind of expand on the, the idea. Yeah, so a couple of things I want to hit before I even hit the, the evasion piece. So um, Andy, you mentioned what if like a worm was put on a host and it like ran as fast as software could run. Right. Mm-hmm. My question is this: Why can't part of the detection process, detection response process, run just as fast? Right. Good question. And, and so, whenever we talk about this, we talk about um, a um, kind of a methodology and a new thought process that actually Jared came out with, and it's in his SoCon talk about like when it comes to false positives and false negatives, mm-hmm. and it introduces an idea called a base condition. And so, this base condition is the bare minimum an attacker needs to perform in order for the actual behavior to be successful, right? So let's talk about Kerberosing. In order for Kerberosing to be successful in any way, shape, or form, a service ticket must be requested. Okay, so that's our base condition. Now, once that's where the detection engineer is going... Go ahead, Jared. Yeah, so basically the idea is, is that there's, as far as I'm aware anyway, so feel free to correct me, there's no way you could perform curb roasting without requesting a service ticket. Yeah. So if you could reliably identify when service tickets are requested, there's there's if that's your base condition, there's no way that curb roasting will happen without you knowing about it. You know, like you you of course have to sure. differentiate between yeah. legitimate service ticket requests and malicious, sure. but like at least you have a base set of data that tells you like all curb roasting attempts are contained within this. So. Yeah, I'm with you. Precisely. Okay. Right. So then that will move into the next piece. And actually, this all correlates with the funnel, right? So that base condition is within the detection piece of the funnel. Then we move forward to triage. And triage's job is to add um, classifications or contextual value to these base conditions or these data sets, right? So we haven't dropped any of the data yet because that's just going to, anytime you drop data due to a false positive that you think is in the environment, false positives are not globally unique, they're locally unique. And anytime you drop a false positive, you're opening a door for a false negative to bypass or evade whatever. You're basically saying, come in and do whatever you want. Now, that's to kind of answer the question, okay, what if like an attacker is doing something as fast as software can perform? I think detection response can perform just as fast. Um, I think that detection piece, well, I know the detection piece, the base condition, and the triage piece can be automated. I've done it. Um, I've done it like in a personal lab. I've done it within in a client's environment. So it can happen, um, and it is possible. The only time by which the automation piece stops is when you reach that investigation moment. Um, because investigation is whenever you need an analyst to put eyes on the data set and say, um, based off of all these contextual values and the classifications and priorities that we've assigned to these data sets, um, I need to look into these and figure out if they're benign or malicious. And then you move to the remediation piece, right? Now, each one of those pieces within the funnel has an evasion method um, attached to it, right? And bypass and evasion is 
equally the same thing based off of DOD and like evasions Latin term is evadere, which is basically to go past anything you want. So All right. um, they're basically the same. So if you say bypass, it's the same thing as evasion um, and vice versa. So um, I kind of stuck with evasion just because it has a Latin term in it. I think it's sexy, so why not use that? Um, and so each part of the funnel, has, even collection, has an evasion possibility or method um, inside of that that an attacker could take advantage of. So let's go ahead and move all the way to the investigation. Say everything within the funnel is perfect. I mean, it's just you have it automated, the base conditions there, the contextual pieces are there, you get to the investigation or the analyst there at hand. There's two evasion opportunities there. One of which um, is going to be the opportunity by which, and I, this is kind of a tougher one to kind of like explain, um, but it's basically called like a temporal evasion, meaning like okay. the attacker has had time to clean up their activity um, based off the amount of alerts or the volume of alerts that have now been fired. Um, and so you might have caught them or quote unquote caught them. But the problem is there's so many alerts, so many um, things there that the investigator analyst cannot remediate that in a, in a timely fashion or investigate in yeah. a timely fashion. Um, then you have also something called a technical evasion. Um, that is when the analyst does not have the current technical skill set to um, actually apply to that data set at hand. Sure. Um, and so those those are all things, and that applies to investigation and remediation. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind that each part of the funnel has that. Now, we have to ask ourselves in, in return, um, what is the expected output of a detection? And this goes back to what Jared was saying. I'm sure he wants to talk more about this. But is that to say to stop the attacker, right? Is that to classify that an attacker was there? Or is that to do both of those things and then actually do a backstep of the attack chain to figure out what all they did, um, right? Because then we can talk about markup chains where it's like, okay, well, we've caught them at this point and we know if they're doing, I don't know, dumping LSAS, at some point they had to get administrative privileges or system of privileges, which these are the only attacks that you can do to, to get that for probes escalation, right? So then you can like move through those kind of concepts. Okay. I disagree with one thing you said at the Hit very me. beginning. So you said that the base condition for someone to Kerberost an account mm. was requesting a service ticket. I think the base condition for Kerberosting is that there is a privileged user that has some kind of value in the service principal name's attribute. I think that's the base condition. And yeah, uh, yeah. So there's a precondition for being able to Kerberos, and then there's a base condition for the action of Kerberosting. Right. Is and I think I think that if if I were smarter, if I were Robbie, so like pre prevention I, control would be yeah. don't have people have SPNs that don't need them, and then have you know hard passwords. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 If you have to have an SPN, then have a, a very long and complex password that can't yep. be cracked by yeah, and like with known Kerberosting methodology. Kerberosting prevention. The like you are. We already kind of touched on the uh, the friction. Is what is this going to break if I change yeah. the password? Yeah. And I don't. Do you have Do you have a good way to evaluate if I change the password of this service account, what that will affect? Like. I imagine you just look at who's using that service account over some longitudinal set of data. 
I think there's I think there's two levels to look at it from. I think one is where is that account performing um, interactive logons, or where is the account being used for Kerberos authentication? And say that that's like an MS SQL instance, mm-hmm. and say that thing is like business critical and like absolutely cannot suffer any downtime whatsoever. That makes that kind of hard to yeah. change the password for that and then update the password in the MS SQL uh, settings, right? In my own experience, most of the most dangerous accounts that I have seen that are Kerberosable are not being legitimately used for Kerberos authentication handling to a, to or brokering yeah. or, or or being trusted to, to do their own little Kerberos uh, authentication. A lot of times they're like an admin who set up MS SQL on a system, you know, seven years ago with their domain admin account. And then that MS SQL computer uh, was decommissioned six yeah. years ago. Yep. And then over the past six years, you've had this really dangerous configuration with that the passwords has not one, been cleaned two, up. One, two, three, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like some super or, weak wasn't password. Wasn't it AVC123, I think, was the password? No, that's, that's a different story, man. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a different story. But like, there's. There's a lot of really easy wins in my experience with like Kerberosable users in particular, like like that uh, that that concept. There's the other the other factor is like part of that attack chain is you Kerberos the user, you recover its plain text password, then you perform some kind of logon on a system that you are you know you have access to and you use that user's privilege to continue your attack path right there's also this concept of restricting what systems users can log on to right mm-hmm. so actually in the service principle names attribute it will list out the system where the kerberos service is that that user is being used to handle kerberos authentication on so you can actually really easily at least i think tell what systems can this user legitimately log on to and then Use GPO to restrict logon to only that system for that user. Mm. Like that can be a totally legitimate uh, yeah. preventative control as well. You know, assuming that like you can't remove the SPN, you can't give it a strong password. You do have these other preventative mitigated controls that you should be investing in first, in my opinion. Yep. Rather yep. than like this digging, is a- sh- digging like a like a. A, a, a hole as deep as you can into like the perfect detection. This is a good use the case attack. for the kind of relationship between prevention and detection, right? So totally, yeah, uh, totally, yeah. So okay, so like the way that this would generally go is I'm an attacker. The first thing I do is I make a Kerberos request or an LDAP query that basically says what what user accounts have SPNs, right? Oh gosh, the dog. That somebody just rang the doorbell, so now the dog's barking. But we'll just keep talking. Okay, so I make yeah. a, I, I ask, you know, who has SPNs? Um, that doesn't have to happen. You could have some pre, like some information that causes you to not yeah. have to do that. That's why I don't consider yeah. that to be the base condition, right? And then, yeah. uh, and so what we could do as defenders is we can identify, you know, preemptively what accounts have SPNs associated with them. We could then even go further to request tickets. And tried to, you know, basically red team it and try yeah. to try to crack those. And we could evaluate and say, okay, well, you know, these five accounts are uh, crackable, right? And so then, then you could have the conversation of, can we change those passwords 
to make them more or like do we need them in the first place yeah if we do need them can we change the passwords to make them more like less likely to be cracked um, and if the answer is no now we need to design a detection around those but we've reduced the scope of the detection significantly i think there's still like value in creating a detection that's looking for somebody for instance e uh, enumerating all accounts that have sure. spns because like even if they're not successful it's a good you know like pre-warning i guess um yeah. but as far as like where the actual like risk of them being successful with a curb roasting attack is you've now potentially limited the scope to where you don't have to necessarily be worried about every single account that has spn has an spn um you can now be worried about every, like these three accounts which are particularly vulnerable to the attack and like yeah. so detection and prevention work in concert together uh, yeah in that use case along with well i mean like so prevention detection like both like pretty high level concepts yep. but i think like for that particular example you know you have all kinds of other controls that come into play as well you have asset inventory event collection sim um least privilege uh you have all kinds of concepts that are in the orbit of the problem of users can be Kerber roasted. You have all kinds of different yep. things. But I, I do think that like, to echo what you said, I, I do think that prevention and, det and detection can work in concert. I think maybe where we might differ is I think that prevention should be the primary uh, control and detection should always be a secondary or mitigating control. Yeah, I probably not agree. not to I not to say that not to I say that a mitigating control that. can't help a, pri a, a a primary control. They, they yep. can and they do all the time, right? But uh, like when you think about like defense in depth or 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 whatever else, uh, I I do think that like the preventative controls just kind of like put a cherry on top of like the conversation that we started off like a yep. few months ago and at the beginning of this. I do think that preventative controls don't get the attention and love that they deserve. Uh, I do think that they should get more attention and love than secondary controls, which does include detection, but includes a whole bunch of other things as well. Um, but I do, I. But with that said, I also think that detection is uh, totally required uh, as well for yep. uh, being a mitigating control, and then also being a control that helps with investigations, with you know tracking like how did this attack happen in the first place. So yeah, I, I don't, so I don't, I don't mean to say that like detection is bad. <laughs> I I completely agree with your statement of prevention should be the number one goal and detection should be a mitigating control. So there's preventative yeah. controls and detective controls, and you should strive to implement preventative controls where possible. Yeah, I think one of the problems is is that like as a consultant, my interface into the organization is at the detection yeah level. Like I'm not interfacing with like, and not that I wouldn't necessarily, but. I just don't often have the opportunity to be interfaced with the prevention team. You also you also brought the point earlier that like preventative controls can be very 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 difficult to put into place yep. and to maintain. Yep. And detection controls can kind of bypass that bureaucracy as well. So the way forward with mitigating controls can a lot of times be a lot easier than it is with primary controls which are which can be much much more difficult to implement and maintain. Yeah. And there's there's kind of like a I'm curious how frequently and this might just be because we haven't positioned ourselves for this um, at Spectre Ops in particular, but like I'm curious I know that they're like I'm curious how often organizations engage with consultants uh, to for preventative stuff 
like the preventative aspect of things because a lot of times the the clients that we have have prev- like teams that are dedicated to that and yeah. like those teams aren't the people that we're interfacing with i know that that like i know like vulnerability scan like scanning is a popular like vulnerability assessment but that's a lot of times like the third party kind of interaction is often focused on patches and i think what yeah. you're talking about like obviously patch management's an important aspect of of information security but what you're talking about is not necessarily patch related it's more configuration yeah. related i think like one of one of, one of the most critical things is i think like with what i think that's called is implementation consulting mm-hmm. um where there is some kind of policy or program or technology that the organization needs help getting off the ground and and getting um momentum behind the maintenance of and then and then leaving and, and letting the people who are full-time uh employees there uh control it I, I do, from my own limited perspective, you know, being like an offensive uh, security consultant for the past several years, um, I have heard inklings of uh, implementation consulting. You know, like uh, back in the day, it was like uh, Microsoft Slam uh, consulting. Like they would be the ones who, to bring it all back to LAPS, they were the ones who would like install the precursor to LAPS in an organization and then leave and and let the full-time employees take over i think with other technologies and other programs as well a lot of times what you see is like Uh, vendors will provide their own implementation consulting services Maybe it's intellectual property related is why we don't hear about it maybe yeah um i i I also believe that like a lot of like uh big four consulting i think will also do uh implementation engagements Uh. where they are uh you know implementing a technology or a program for the organization that maybe they have a deal with a vendor or maybe they don't. Maybe okay. This is, this is kind of, this is kind of weird. And I, I don't like, again, I don't, I don't know if this is even true at all, but like maybe, maybe like the types of organizations that, uh, again, I'm not going conservative and liberal in a political sense, the types of organizations that are focusing on detection are more liberal kind of like minded as far as okay. being like being open and like mm. contributing to the community and like open source and all that kind of stuff. And the types of like big four organizations by definition are conservative, right? Like that, that is what they are is like you have, you put this, you know, system in place with a bureaucracy and you execute it as efficiently as possible to make as much money as possible. Right. Not saying that like smaller inf- like technology companies aren't trying to make as much money as possible, but maybe they have like the, like, like but the like for sending like the COBOL and Fortran experts to like keep the bank the core banking system yeah but like what i'm thinking is like maybe prevention prevention is inherently a more conservative uh kind of like discipline right so like you're you are making small changes over time to make like to deal with efficiency as opposed to kind of more broad-ranging detective controls Mm. and maybe like and maybe like generally like the conservative practice of it is less has less desire to share that not like not necessarily in like a negative way but just in a temperamental way like that's not what drives them potentially Mm. i don't know i I I think that's i think that's interesting i'd be interested to hear what people think about that if anybody has if anybody's listened this long to us talk um (laughs) and has an opinion on that i'm interested to hear what you think yeah cool well i think we're uh we're running out of time i don't know if anybody has any final statements or if everybody's Good to go. No, I just wanted to well, actually like throw throw another analogy at, at what Andy said oh at boy. the end, which is um, that 
the first line of defense should definitely be preventative controls. And I think of it like a bank, like, yeah, you want the lasers and the cameras and all that stuff, but you'd be pissed if your bank got robbed and there was no lock on the door. Right. Like, exactly. Like yeah. it's at some level, that's kind of the foundation, the step one, and then you bolt on the cool, sexy stuff. But like, number one, fucking lock the door. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. you got to have something in there to, to stop the guys instead of just finding out about it afterwards. But, Hey Luke, this is a yeah. family. This is a family. Show. Hey, not after episode three. Johnny opened that floodgate. <laughs> Dude, sorry. You can't expect that from me, man. Oh my gosh. All right. Yeah. Appreciate your time, Andy, and good combo. I think we really enjoyed this one. Um, that was my pleasure. Thanks yeah, for having me on. Yeah, no problem, Bob. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the Podcast or on our website dcppodcast.com. Every week you'll see posts about who our next guest is going to be, the actual episode announcements themselves, and on our website you can see all the episodes listed with links to the different podcast providers and our timing guides. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.